Bucks got all the right steps in Charleston. They now can try their slipper and see if it fits at the big ball. East Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys. Hunter Muscaro, Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Bucks is spotting for three. The place is going to erupt. Oh, Deuce Bellow, he's going to make Sports Center with an incredible Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it! Ball game, East Tennessee State's going to leave on another They got him, if he catches it, it's over, ball game! Touchdown, Jawan Stinson! 25 yards! J.J. German for the win! He got it! J.J. German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs! And the sidekick. Who in the blue hell are you? <laughs> You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandos in the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Well, just like we've talked about it, he tells you the way they score. Ricky Monty and Bob for another time. But, ETSU finally won. 2017 VMI. ETSU finally won a Southern Conference game by more than one score and was thoroughly dominating and they've been dominating this year except for what the final score looks like and it was great to see the final score go a couple quick stats and we'll welcome Mike Gallagher in but ETSU's first double digit or more than one score game in the Southern Conference since November 4th 2017 which is almost unbelievable first when you win. Think. First, yes, win. That's true. Yeah, not not, not, not game this You're right. Uh, but that was 1,435 days. Of course. Here we go. It was the biggest. That's what we're here for. That's right. It was the biggest win in the Southern Conference. A little foreshadowing, okay? Since Chattanooga. Ooh. Right? Chattanooga. That was uh, 68-7. That was November 15, 2003, last year of football. Which was, uh, you know, a long time ago. Last one at chat. We'll get over that, uh, but I do have the day counter on that. We'll go over that on Thursday. I will tell you when was the last time and how many days it was. But the, a little foreshadowing because ETSU, last big win like that was Chattanooga last year football, which ETSU fell down 7 out and then rattled off a lot of points in a row. Uh, Jay Sanders, Mike Gallagher here on the show. We will talk a little women's basketball. We'll talk about Southern Conference results. We'll talk about bold predictions. But we're going to celebrate what was a dominating ETSU performance. There's a lot to go with. I thought the depth of, and I've thought this way earlier before, it was like, okay, you knew Holmes and Sailors could get in the end zone, but then really who else can you get in the end zone? And now it's turning into, I don't want to say an embarrassment of riches, but there are a lot of guys who have seen um, the end zone this year, uh, you know, from different positions. We finally saw a tight end score. We've seen fullback score. We've seen running backs. We've seen the quarterback run and throw. We've seen couple wide receivers, uh, one a newbie, one an oldie but a goodie. But, I mean, it just seems like – and now with Julian Price coming back in, the offense didn't seem to miss a beat uh, for missing Isaiah Wilson. And so uh, – and even Julian was like, hey, I made a few mistakes. Uh, it's hard for us to see, but I'm sure uh, film room will show up. But I thought just an all-around dominating performance, the defense, the offense, and, yes, the special teams were unbelievable in that contest, and it showed. I'm guessing 
like me, you were most shocked by the special teams part of that, considering we had, I think it was three punts combined, 93 yards, 31-yard average, and a couple of punts that in my mind I can still see sailing, if you can call it sailing, uh, very minuscule distances off the feet of both Nate Brackett and Garrett Taylor two weeks ago. And then you saw an absolute pun fest. I mean, one of the best kicking displays, I think, on both sides at the FCS level. I mean, we could include the FBS level in this if you want. 76 yards from Garrett Taylor, then 84 yards from the Citadel. I mean, absolutely outrageous. That was my most shocking part of the contest. And that actually probably even includes the fact that ETSU won by 27 points. It was the school record for Matthew Campbell to Citadel to outdo this. I, again, we I don't know that I've seen the, oh gosh, that was 76 and 84. I just haven't. 160 combined punt yards on two punts. That's, I just haven't seen that. So that, that was incredible. Both guys flipped the field in an unbelievable way. And I think that was the most shy. Out of all the things shocking in the game, to see two over 75-yard punts uh, and flip the field from guys basically back in their own end zone, and especially on the ETSU side, that being the first punt after what we saw last week was incredible. And then, you know, then I think he bombed a 56-yarder and his average went down. <laughs> right. It's one of those weird things, but I, I, that was the most shocking. I thought Tyler Keltner, the six um, – Extra points, had a couple of field goals. He continues to climb the list. But to me, it was offensively just really whatever ETSU wanted to do. I mean, five straight possessions, the last two to end the first half, uh, scores, the first three to start the second half, scores, only one field goal. You know, the first half felt like you left some points on the table because, you know, you you settled for a couple of – well, three field goals, really. You settled for three field goals, missed one hit two, and you, you just felt like should have had more points on the board, and then all of a sudden it was just points of plenty. I think the big, uh, not big, the only negative of the game was yet another touchdown called back because of an unsportsmanlike penalty, and I, I get it if it was we haven't seen it before, but you've already saw it once, and now you've cost yourself a second time. Now, ETSU was able to um, two plays later, go ahead and score uh, a touchdown. But still, I, th- I think that's something that Randy Sanders, I think, is going to address and be like, okay, guys, at some point in time, do you want to have six points on the board in your name or not? Well, and that's the shame of it, is those highlights for those kids go down now as just another play. Like, obviously, Karanda Lentz, that was going to be, unless he did something unbelievably unforeseen and incredible. Probably number one on his highlight reel for his entire career. Now, still could be, because if you look back at the tape, and I know we belabor this point seemingly every show that we talk about football, but there's really not much there, and in ten years if you show that to either your kids or other players, they may not know, they may not see, they may not understand how or why or in what shape or form that was taunting. And so you may be able to put that number one still, but... Regardless, uh, he will always know the truth. And Jacob Saylor, as you call him on the broadcast, one of the better runs, I think, since football's return in terms of just unlikely advancement into some incredible positions and you know finding his way to the end zone. And so Jacob's a smart person. You and me both know Jacob. Smart individual. And so I'm sure that right when he did it, he wanted to put those two fingers back down when he was deucing to the – defensive back that was chasing him, 
because he probably knew there was going to be a penalty, and he probably knew that that was not a smart thing, and I'm sure it's going to be corrected. But a shame for him, too. I'm sure he's just excited about making such an incredible run, right? And it's been an amazing year. So I think he got caught up in the moment. The thing that, for me, offensively, that stood out from play one to the very final play of the game on the offensive side, and we talked about it last week. Jeff Saturday talked about it last week on ESPN. We highlighted it on social media, here on the show, so on and so forth. The offensive line was opening holes, and we've kind of talked about this in a couple of different ways, but specifically Saturday I think it showed. It was impossible for the Bucks not to succeed on the ground. And Quay Jacob and, hey, Bryce Nerby and Jawan Martin, like you said, an embarrassment of riches. Anybody in the backfield, it seems. They, they run hard. They run hard, and they gain the extra yards. They keep the legs turning. They push and carry defenders. It's very impressive what they can do. But more impressive to me is the width of the holes that that offensive line is opening for them to run through and the push that they're getting off the line. Every single time I looked up and you know, run the broadcast from back here, obviously I'm more focused on trying to keep us on air and doing highlights, scoreboard, so on and so forth. But I must have seen at least, you know, three-quarters of the plays as I'm kind of between stuff. And it didn't seem like there was one time the entire day, save maybe one play, I'm trying to remember what it was, maybe in the second half when the Citadel really truly knew they were up against the wall and they needed to stop. But I can't recall the offensive line getting beat the entire day seemingly at any position. It was incredible. It's the one thing I think that has been understated even by us, the lack of hits on Tyler Rydell in the pass game, the absurdity of holes that ETSU open up seemingly every single day. And a lot of it is, you know, the line has played a lot of snaps. They plugged a couple of new guys in in the spring. They were able to sort of grow. Joe Schreiber, Fred Norman taking over as starters. Blake Austin been around, just hadn't quite gotten the starting lineup, but, you know, he got in. Uh, he actually didn't start as a starter. Casey Setscorn did in the spring, and then Blake Austin ended up coming in um, and taking over, and I think just those extra spring, if there was ever an argument of playing in the spring and what it can do, I think just the continuity in the line, I think the checks of Tyler Rodell check, and again, I, I think the check in the run game is underrated. For him, and, you know, I think Matt Wilgen did a better job of pointing it out before the play would happen, where me and Robert are a little more reactive when we're together. But him saying, hey, look, he's, you know, because that's what Matt's doing. He's up there as a quarterback thinking, hey, they've got four on this side. We've got five blockers. He's going to check the left. And sure enough, you know, he didn't quite go Tony Romo and tell you the exact play. But, you know, I thought Matt did a great job of sort of breaking that down and going. And then I thought ETSU, the confidence – and Tyler Rodell to do about anything they want on first down was incre- – and I think that's that's the game changer because before it was like, okay, you know first down is going to be a run. You know, the occasional maybe pass, but for the most part, you know, each is going to try to stay out of long-distance situations. They're going to want to just run the ball, get in something manageable, try to figure it out from there, nothing too crazy. Now they're just, just straight opening up the offense. I mean – it was amazing to see on first down uh, what ETSU was able to do. 37 first down plays, 367 yards. 
9.9 yards on first down. 25 rushes for 195 yards. See, So if you're thinking, well, you know, they did have the one long bomb, 50-yarder that skewed it. No. I mean, they still averaged eight yards a carry on first down. Nine completions for 172 yards. I mean, just, you look at that number on first down, and they're just hitting people in the face. And you're talking about starting drives with your first play first. I mean, they had 15 first downs on the 37 plays. So you're 10 or more yards. I'm right I'm pretty good at math. There are 10 or more yards on those 15 plays. Uh, and it's just, you look at some of those gaudy numbers on first down, and that just, the whole playbook is, a, in, is open, and it just makes ETSU, I think, more dangerous and more confident and knocking off some of these things they've not been able to do before, I think has been able to do it. And the defense being able to sit back and if they do give up a, a rare play, it's like, oh, okay, you know, here comes the offense because I think the offense takes it personal. Every time it seems like, other than it was a little stretch there in the Sanford game, other than that, when somebody's come down and scored, ETSU is answered immediately almost every time. Um, and, again, there was only – one or two possessions separate game they did. Other than that, they did, especially end of the game. When time was running down and running out, they were able to make those plays. And again, my magic number of 24 is hold true. If ETSU can score 24 or more on offense, I think they're going to win the game. I think the only time they give up more than 24 points probably has already happened. Now, there could be a late touchdown, you know, meaningless late in the game if ETSU's up 20 or 30, where, yeah, sure, maybe – Somebody gets over that threshold, but I, I have a hard time seeing right now, you know, who, who's going to be able to put up more than 24 points against this defense. And I think right now if you're an opposing team, you got to start thinking, I need to score 30, 35 or more because the offense is clicking right now. First FBS win since football's been back, right? Held Vanderbilt to three points, which I believe is the least for a non-conference opponent. Outside of Gardner-Webb, I suppose the Gardner-Webb game in the middle of the season in 2018. But hold every non-conference opponent to two touchdowns or less, pardon me. And you move on through the year and you win at Sanford, right? First time since football's been back. Win against Wofford, final team you haven't beaten since football's been back. And then this past weekend against the Citadel, you break that long streak and this was, I know I say it every week, it seems like. And so if I'm sounding like a broken record or if I'm repeating myself or, you know, if you're just tuning in for the first time, hopefully you don't know. But every week it seems like we're saying this is something that the Bucks haven't done. And I'm saying for a lot of these games, this is the last thing that ETSU hasn't done, right? Like, oh, well, okay, I haven't beaten an opponent level up. Well, he did that. Now you hadn't beaten Wofford, you know the program's really back when you beat every team in the conference. Oh, you did that. Then I found a way this week to make sure that it wasn't all the way back because then you have the 13-game streak of conference games decided by one score. And then you just blow Citadel out of the water. And Coach Sanders called it one of the most complete performances since he has been here in postgame with you. And I have a hard time disagreeing, and I think you hit on a great point with not only the depth, but specifically what Julian Price is able to do. And you and me had talked about it on the show for the first five, six weeks of the year. And Julian even talked about a postgame with you. He wasn't really sure what he was getting into when it came to this injury. He had a similar injury, if not the same injury, in his freshman season. And you have a recurring injury like that of the severity in the part of the body that it was for Julian Price, and you're starting to think, 
okay, this could be very detrimental to my health in the future if I go back out there and play. And so there were some questions as to if he would play again. And we talked about it here. You hoped that he would because, as you saw on Saturday, he brings, I don't want to say an element the Bucks don't have, because I think Malik Murray brings a lot of the same elements that Julian Price does in terms of being that more possession-type receiver. Um, but Julian, for his first time truly back in the field, I think you and me kind of a snap or two that he played two weeks ago. But to have five catches and 78 yards, and ETSU, uh, I don't know if it was truly making a statement. I know Matt Wiljum on the broadcast was very adamant that a couple of different times maybe ETSU was making a statement. Juwan Martin, fullback run, was his main one. But I thought throwing it to Julian Price on the first play of the game offensively for ETSU was a really big, you know, put your foot down. You're not going to know what's coming today. We're going to do a lot of different stuff that you have not seen, Citadel, and unless you play perfect football, you're not going to be able to keep up. And that's another common theme of the season. It seems like teams have to play perfect in order to keep up with ETSU. And Sanford, to their credit, on one side of the ball at least, played dang near perfect. Over 700 combined yards of offense. Now, defensively, obviously, they left a little something to be desired. But they're just not capable of doing things on the defensive side. You need to be able to stop ETSU offensively. I don't know if there is a team right now that the Bucks are going to see that are capable of that. I'll be very interested to see what happens on Saturday. Again, we can talk more about that Thursday. But I think this is the one team, Chattanooga, coming up that in the league this year is going to be able to push ETSU. But do they have what it takes to stop ETSU offensively? Uh, again, perfection needs to be achieved, it seems like, when the Bucks are hitting on all cylinders in order to even be in the conversation of pulling an upset. And I think early for me in this game, it was clear that perfection was not going to be attained by the Citadel. Tyree Robinson makes another incredible play in the backfield on a fourth and two. Now, ETSU takes over, doesn't get points, as he said, which was frustrating because that was essentially the easiest chance they had at them all day. And then... Of course, Tyree wasn't done because he's never done against the Citadel. I think the Bulldogs will be waking up in a cold sweat for many, many weeks to come, thinking about Tyree Robinson, picks off Jalen Adams right when the Citadel's going down to put up some points on an underthrown ball. And by the way, Bulldogs threw it 15 times. Definitely did not think I would see that. So Tyree Robinson continues to be a beast, and that offense of the Citadel, um, there's some positive things there. But what makes perfection even harder to achieve offensively for the opponent is the fact that ETSU defensively has playmaker after playmaker after playmaker. And no surprise, on the Citadel week, it was Tyree Robinson. The play where he dove over the guy to make the fourth down stop. And that's one of those things that's a game changer. And it was a little disappointing ETSU didn't get anything on the board um, because that just changes – how you're going to treat it. I mean, you, Citadel's two yards and less. I mean, most teams that run that, percentages, they're near their 35 or more they are going to run it. And it's, it's all the teams. I mean, I watch one of them on a lot of Saturdays in Army, and Navy does the same thing. And we've watched Georgia Southern for many years, if you've been a Southern Conference fan, going way back. And that's just who they are. And they try to establish that physicality. I think the biggest difference for the Citadel, and I think this is – Probably, I had this note written down, and I actually didn't use it on the broadcast, but 
You know, they got a few guys off that 2016 to 2018 bunch that's in the NFL on the defensive side of the ball. And that doesn't happen every day in the Southern Conference. I mean, as a matter of fact, they had a couple of DBs, number one. Uh, one even transferred um, as a grad transfer over to Miami, Florida for a year to help his status and then got in the league. So, you know, they had a couple of defensive linemen hanging around. And if you had a couple of defensive linemen, right, and a couple of secondary guys, well, that changes things dramatically. And in Southern Conference, let's just be honest, you're, you're not rolling, you know, four guys in the league off of within a year or two ever. I mean, I know Wofford's had a couple of D-linemen, but they, they haven't rolled four guys like that. Chattanooga hasn't rolled four guys like that. So I think the biggest difference in the Citadel is on the defensive side of the ball. They don't have a couple of the big guys they, they've had. And then – you know, they had some pros on the back end, which allowed you to do some of the press coverage and things that they wanted to do. And I thought ETSU's play calling, and you look at everybody on the field on the first play of the game, and you could have took a poll of the – I would have guessed quarterback keeper before Julian Price uh, with the first pass if you would have said, okay, Quay and Jacobs on the field, first play of the game. Which one of those guys again? getting right? That's your first option. Okay, now Malik Murray, right? Then you've got Huzzy. They didn't have a tight end, so Price is the other. I would have probably said, okay, it's going to be the two running backs, option one and two on the first play of the game, then maybe the outside receivers, three and four. And then if it came down between Price and Rydell, I'm thinking, well, maybe they got a quarterback. I don't know. He would have been the fifth, if not the sixth choice. And it, to me it shows the genius of how dialed in Randy Sanders is with game plans. I mean, first play of the game is a 20-yard pass. Julian Price, who hadn't caught a ball all year, played sparingly last week, and I'm sure Citadel defense, when everybody's rolling out there, he's the least of their worries, and I think that set the tone offensively for the day. And it's such a builder for Rydell, the offense. I mean, you just get a big chunk play, go straight down the field, and, yeah, I know it ended in a football, kind of fizzled out on that second down play, right? There was a drop pass. I'm trying to remember. There was a second down play where um, ETSU – didn't get the second down, kind of threw them off. Then third down, you know, uh, a little conservative, and then they kicked the field goal. But that first drive still was just kind of right down the field to get the defense. It just took a second, but as the game gets going, it, I feel like the chess game for Randy Sanders, Billy Taylor, they're winning that tremendously. On top of there's a lot of physical talent winning on the field for ETSU. Uh, especially with the offensive line. They are dominating. The one thing I will say that concerned me about this game, and I, and I think next week is I thought the physicality for the Citadel and what they bring and Chattanooga. And Chattanooga is probably the best one-two punch run game, probably second-best defensive team. And I, I know we'll talk about um, some things with VMI here when we do the SOCON wrap-up. But I, I think this ETSU team turned some heads with that win, which I don't know why it took that long, but it did appear um, maybe it's the six teams in the top 25 that lost, and they turn around and look at ETSU just throttling the Citadel. I'm not sure. I did enjoy there were several people that were trying to rank teams above ETSU, and they were claiming, you know, ETSU didn't have either a signature win or somebody beat an FBS, and then of course Twitter Nation for the Bucks hammered uh, two or three different writers and reporters, and then all of a sudden it sort of just went. So I feel like... They tend to show up on Nation on Twitter. It, but it's also top 25s are a thing. Like, in, you know, in the mid-major basketball poll, ETSU gets 
it doesn't take too many wins for people to notice because people know of ETSU basketball. Now, there have been a couple of years where it took a little longer, but for the most part, people know ETSU in, in the mid-major world in basketball. It is not a known commodity, and sometimes top 25, especially with people that aren't in your region, so the Midwest, so, you know, West, Midwest, some of that, Northeast, not familiar with ETSU. They were the, sort of the Cinderella story in 2018, but it was a one and done. and So the, they're just not the name recognition. Um, ETSU, depending on how the rankings come out by the time we record this, they're not out yet. But um, I don't think they're going to get to seven, but that's the the highest rank that ETSU had been in 96, which is the highest rank because the 69 didn't have rankings. So um, 96 over seventh uh, for the matchup for Marshall, and they'd won seven in a row going into that game. I want to make sure on one more thing on this game, and it's just revisiting Garrett Taylor's punt. It felt to me like that was bigger because of how the Wofford game went because it was starting to feel like while ETSU was doing a pretty solid job of essentially dominating the game, that that field flip was important because it was still just 10-7. And remember against Wofford, you, again, basically dominated for the entire first 15, you know, 20 minutes, whatever it was. And then all of a sudden you looked at the scoreboard as you approached halftime, and it was 14-10. to 10. Wofford was on top. It was starting to feel a little bit to me like, you know, you have the quick possession, right? Um, Holmes gets a first down. You know, you had the interception by Robinson. Holmes gets the first down. But then three straight incompletions, and you're backed up a bit, you know, putting from near your own goal line, and the Citadel's maybe gaining a bit of momentum, and then 76 yards. And if you're Brent Thompson and the Bulldogs, you just have to sit there on the sideline and just shake your head. Like, what? who is that guy? <laughs> we haven't seen that guy that's punting the ball for ETSU and, you know, at that level, firstly, ever, but secondly, consistently, even as a shell of what we saw on Saturday for many, many weeks, if at all, this year. You may have to go back to the spring. Speaking of uh, the spring and previous seasons for ETSU, do you know how many total points the Bucks have scored in their best offensive season since football's been back? No, do not off the top of my head, no. 2018 championship season, Makes not sense. surprising. I would have guessed the year, but I, I wouldn't have guessed the total. 312. Were they right now 302 or something? Their last full season of 2019, 241. They're at 236 right now. We're six games in. I mean, this is unbelievable. They're still averaging almost 40 points a game. You talked about ranked teams in the national poll and such, and I kind of introduced this fact yesterday that I wanted to visit it here. You know, I'm uh, one of those young people that always wants to be first to everything, so I had to obviously tweet it before the show. Uh, I counted nine ranked teams that lost across the country. We may have been looking at different polls. Um, Sorry, yeah. um, There were, yes, nine ranked teams. Um, six of those games were versus top got 25 teams. So I, think I, I think I got that stat in my head first, but yes, that is correct. Nine did lose. So James Madison and South Dakota State were two of them, two of the top three teams in the country. SDSU lost by one at home against Southern Illinois, JMU by one at home against Villanova. I am excited to see how high the Bucks rise in this poll when it comes out, if, whether it's you know, an hour or so, 90 minutes, um, whenever they put it out. I think it's right around noon, usually, on Mondays. I count two 6-0 teams, if you didn't see this on social media. Eastern Washington seems like they're always there. And, of course, there's 
eight undefeated teams overall. ETSU, along with Eastern Washington, the other six, no team, obviously. Three of the undefeated teams are out of the Ivy League. Harvard, Dartmouth, Princeton, all 4-0. Rhode Island, Sam Houston State, and the defending national spring champion, if you remember. And NDSU are all 5-0. and And we mentioned the Bucks in Eastern Washington, 6-0. and Harvard has an FCS ranked win over Holy Cross. Dartmouth, nothing really noteworthy. Princeton either. NDSU has two ranked FCS wins over North Dakota and UNI, just from the schedule that they always play. It seems like every single week they play a ranked team. Rhode Island has one ranked FCS win over Delaware from this past weekend. Sam Houston has one FCS ranked win over Central Arkansas. Eastern Washington has a ranked FCS win, and they beat UNLV from the Mountain West in double overtime on opening week. Now, UNLV is 0-5. ETSU beat Vanderbilt by 20, didn't need anything near overtime, and it quite honestly, probably should have been more points. Commodores have two FBS wins. To me, not only because they have as many wins as ETSU, but because they are also the only other undefeated to have even played, not beaten, to have even played an FBS school. But they also do have that victory in that FBS game over UNLV at being Eastern Washington. To me, that's the only resume so far that stacks up. I, I don't immediately throw out the Ivy League whenever I'm looking at this stuff but they played less games um, and typically are just not going to be at the competitive level of some of the stronger FCS conferences. Um, Sam Houston State can't argue with that. NDSU obviously can't argue with that. A couple of traditional powers. Rhode Island is typically there as well. Uh, But again, I think lacking some quality in terms of that next level, and I don't think there's really a better win amongst these eight teams than ETSU over Vanderbilt. Your opinion in this question I introduced on Twitter, or at least I've made it a statement, really truly is a question. Is this the best resume in the country for an FCS team? I mean, I would say, man, it's tough. The only, only, I mean, I know FBS wins are FBS wins. And then what, what's going to be looked at, let, let me let me come from it from not an ETSU side of view, I guess. They're going to, and this is, this is where everything gets skewed, and this is where it used to help ETSU in the Southern Conference when they were the best conference, is you were always playing a ranked FCS opponent almost every week in the Southern Conference. And so when you played four, five, six ranked teams just by – you being in the league, people tend to weight you differently. People are going to look at Samford, and they're going to look at the Citadel, and they're going to look at you know Delaware State. They're going to look at some of those. And I know Delaware State's a non-conference, so let's just stick with conference. But they're going to look at you know Wofford, Citadel, Samford, and they're going to look at a couple of those Missouri Valley, Big Sky, CAA in-conference league games and are going to weight those more. Now, the FBS should count because it does with the committee more. You get an extra, you know, .5 or whatever tabulation you get instead of a point for a uh, 1.2 for a road victory, you get like 1.7 or some ridiculous value attached to that. So, I mean, pure, if you don't know anything and you read team names, I'm going to say if it's not the best, it can't be worse than second. If it's if it's if it's not the best, then it has to be second. But I think the problem is, and this is where top twenty-five polls go awry. So what makes everybody so mad and 
and FBS more than FCS because they don't pay attention to it. But, you know, you, you get Notre Dame ranked third before they played a game, and all of a sudden, you, you know, they're not. Or you get a team that wasn't ranked, and then they grab – you know, Kentucky's going to have to win 17 more in a row to even get in the top 25 because that's just – it's Kentucky. They suck. Miami's a classic every year, right? Yes. They always the, start race. It, 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 Haven't been good since Jimmy Johnson. The big names. So, so it, it's one of those things where it's hard. Once you get in that lure, right, and you get up there for a few years and you win a few playoff games and then people are forgiving and, and you have a name brand. It just, it's just how it is. But some of the, the argument for the other voters and all that is are going to say, you know, other than Vandy, you've played nobody. And they're, and they're just read right, wrong, and different. They're going to look at all those, you know, what's Wofford done out of conference, what they've done in conference, what's Samford done, what's – and they're going to look at all those, and that's where the penalty is going to come from the rest of the voters. Vandy will hold some weight, but everything else will go down. Now, I'm a big fan because Barrett still got called out, and, and I know he's your boy, but he gave how Vandy's better than Alabama. And, again, Twitter Nation from the Bucks chimed in immediately, so – well, hey, genius, if that's true, then ETSU railed Vandy by over 20, so ETSU's clearly better than Alabama. And I am all for the transit of property, who's better than who. I am all for those. I've enjoyed those forever that you can claim somehow that you're better from somebody because in football there's not that many games, and because of different levels, you, you just don't get as much chance to prove yourself. So I'm all for it, and I do enjoy that if the argument is Vandy's better than Alabama, then clearly ETSU would throttle the Crimson Tide, which I believe would happen. Well, I have it right here. ETSU beat Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt beat Colorado State. Colorado State beat San Jose State. San Jose State beat Hawaii. Hawaii beat Fresno State. Fresno State beat UCLA. UCLA beat LSU. You know where this is going. LSU beat Mississippi State. Mississippi State beat Texas A&M. Texas A&M beat Alabama. There you go. Not that many steps, right? Uh, other thing that I forgot that ETSU has done for the first time since football's been back, over 10,000 fans, too. And it was fall break this past week and still over 9,000. So the list of things that the Bucks are accomplishing this year, it seems like one a week at the very least. And you look at the resumes stacked up, and I know how people feel about this other conference now. I still think that there's some credence that should be given to parity within a conference. Okay, there's not the other top teams. First of all, we don't know that yet because that VMI Chattanooga game, a little bit of foreshadowing for our next segment, which we'll get to in just a minute, that was a phenomenal game. Those are a couple teams that are going to be there until the end, I think, VMI and Chattanooga. And those were teams that were nationally ranked at one point this year. Mercer is still undefeated in the league. And so we don't know if they're going to be able, once they hit the gauntlet in their schedule, to hold up in that way. But who's to say? that the Bears aren't here to stay and contending for a title. And then you got four teams of the nine, and then what else do you want? So I understand it's not an NDSU-type schedule. I get that, you know, like we talked about. I mean, the, the Bison play, it seems like a ranked team every single week. And it's not like bottom of the top 25. It's usually mid-teens, if not higher. So, yes, that is as good as it gets, and that is the best of the best. And if ETSU and NDSU played tomorrow... I would like to think that ETSU would be in the game if not have a chance to win it in the end. I'm not fooling myself in thinking that it's going to be 48-21 like it was against the Citadel. Obviously, NDSU is the cream of the crop, the best of the best at the FCS. And Sam Houston State was that if we're including other teams in this undefeated conversation in the spring. And so they're not going to be easy either. That being said, I do think with how this team is playing that – it is, for
from week to week one that is amongst the best in the country. I think the resume is better than anyone else's, including Eastern Washington. And Eastern Washington's another one, right? That, that would be a great game, I think, if ETSU and Eastern Washington played tomorrow. Um, I believe that the Bucks belong in the conversation. I believe that they will be in the conversation for the entire rest of the season. And I think the Southern Conference is going to shake out better than a lot of people think. Here's what will help ETSU. Winning by 20 points over teams that the rest of the country doesn't know anything about and thinks blah. That's going to help. You know, there are a couple of names that certainly, you know, Wofford still carries a little bit of weight, but people look at the overall record and go, ah, that wasn't that impressive. They look at Chattanooga, and yes, Chattanooga would have been a little better if they could have held on against Kentucky, especially they gave Kentucky probably, besides Florida, their best game. So I I think that'll turn a little bit of heads. If you went at Chat, you went at Furman, you're able to do that and do so by more than one score. Although, let's be honest, winning on the road, if you just win and, win and go on, right? But if you're able to do that, I think the heads will turn. The more the more you can beat teams that aren't going to be in the top 25, and, you know, for Buck fans, you probably well, – I mean, I know you're still going to play VMI, but you need either VMI – you need somebody else in the league, and Mercer maybe is that team, but you need other teams in the league to kind of run up there with you. What you don't want – for anybody in any league that isn't in the Missouri Valley – Basically, what you don't want is you win the league by three games and everybody else is like 500. I mean, that that's what you don't want to happen. And right you, or wrong. You, you can argue that it's parody, all that good crap, but no, nobody's going to do that. You need a couple of teams to be, you know, a game or two. You're just kind of fighting. If somebody's 8-0, then you need a couple 6-2 and two teams, right? You need something like that. You can't just have everybody beat each other up 500 and then you're the only team to run away with it because it's just not going to be – that impressive to certain people that are voters and all that good fun stuff. Just to comment on your one point, ETSU's averaging 39.3 points per game. Uh, the most ever in school history was 97 at just under 31 points. So they're in route to smash every record offensively, which would not have been the guess to start the season, even after the Vandy game. Maybe even after the first three games, you wouldn't have sat here and said, you know, this, this team's an offensive juggernaut. But the last three games, they have proven that the first couple of games weren't a fluke, uh, minus maybe Vandy, but Vandy's an SEC team. I mean, I, you can still say what you want to, but they're an SEC team, and ETSU look better offensively in that contest. But uh, they can continue to score some points. This will be a special season like no other. Tied or breaking their most points scored since football's returned twice in three weeks. Pretty impressive. All right, when we come back, we're going to give you a look around the Southern Conference. Still to come, uh, Mike Gallagher sat down with Simon Harris, talk ETSU women's basketball. We'll have Desmond Oliver on next week, and we'll go over bold predictions. All that more coming up. San Jose Sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. And they never heard from him again. Now that's scary, but listen to this one. It was a dark and dreary night. The man pulled into the convenience store parking lot. The lights flickered as he crept toward the counter and saw the new Halloween jumbo box, but he left without buying one, missing his chance at $75,000. That's terrifying. I know, right? Scare up some fun this season with a new Halloween jumbo box, only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Breakdown. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. 
Sandoz and the sidekick. We have ignition. Strap it on, here we go. In your face, all over the place. Sandoz and the sidekick back with you. It's our favorite segment. It is the breakdown. Actually, my favorite segment of Bill Predictions because I'm winning, but it's the breakdown. The Southern BMI Conference. Chattanooga and the Cadets in the box went to overtime. It was 9-7 at the half. BMI head by two after Jerry Rice kicked three first-half field goals. No doubt that, Jerry Rice. And I think on the Food City halftime scoreboard on our game broadcast, I said that we expected more offense from this game. Obviously, someone passed the word along to the teams because the offenses woke up in the second half. 35 combined fourth-quarter points. And three scores in the final four minutes and seven seconds of regulation were featured, including a 39-yard field goal from Aaron Sears to tie the game just 40 seconds after Rice put VMI ahead. But in overtime, Sears missed. Then Rice made from 37. VMI keeps their title hopes alive. Chattanooga drops their first league game after beating Western Carolina last week to open SoCon action. Seth Morgan, as he should have last week for the key. That's started and was excellent. 30 of 42, 306 and three scores. Corey Brenny, you were marveling at him as we were getting ready to kick off at Green Stadium. 166 on the ground, which offset 240 combined yards of rushing for Tyrell Price and a limb forward for the Mox. Cole Copeland completes just 51% of his passes for Chat. The Mox, on their first five drives of the game, didn't gain more than 30 yards on any of them. Copeland on those drives, 7 of 16 for 43 yards. That's less than three yards per attempt. Obviously, this one could have gone either way. Not much separating the teams, as we thought there wouldn't be. But you look back through the game and how things went. To me, Jay Sandoz, it's the lack of production early. Obviously, the more obvious thing is to look at a couple of missed kicks from Sears, uh, missed one in the first half as well. But the passing game continues to stand out, not in a good way for Chattanooga, at least in my mind. Those first five drives only getting 43 combined passing yards, just not good enough. And that put Chattanooga in a position where if you went score for score in the second half, then you had the possibility of coming out on the short end. And that's exactly what happened because they were only able to put up those seven first half points both teams in the nine drives to start the game combined for one of nine to score they went 13 of 19 scoring drives the rest of the game so me and you chastising the shootout we were expecting at halftime when it was nine seven certainly turned into that a couple things that were very noticeable in the pregame show while we we had the game kind of playing and in between breaks we were trying to watch plays vmi just it's very unusual that they can't tackle. I mean, it's the one thing that you can always count on, and they're just giving up plays. They just can't tackle, and they're giving up long runs, gave up limp forward, broke one little weak arm tackle, like a 60, 70-yard touchdown run. I mean, just it's incredible there. And even when VMI sort of had their backs against the wall, all of a sudden Seth Morgan turned it on because he was making – some throws down the field. Now, he got, you know, Michael Jackson, not that one, right? So, talking about Jerry Rice. They got two famous guys that aren't famous guys. But Michael Jackson made a couple of grabs where you're going, okay, if Harris beats you, it's one thing. But when Michael Jackson's jumping over guys, making grabs, and then landing and running by everyone after the fact, you're just going, wow, uh, that, that's a little bit of a day. And then Corey Britty, you know, they kind of held him in check second half, but that's when the passing game was going. First half, Corey was sort of the offense – and could get going. Second half was the passing game, and I mean it was just last five drives were touch or were scores for VMI, three touchdowns, then a field goal to tie the game, send it in overtime, then they get a field goal to 
winning after Chattanooga misses a field goal. And that's sort of the bugaboo for Chattanooga. I know they beat ETSU in the field goal a couple years ago in 2019 on that Thursday night game, but they missed three of them before they got one. They just, for whatever reason, they've had a hard time finding a reliable kicker. Chattanooga run the ball. Question is, what I thought going in the game, how are they going to throw the ball? That's still my question. BMI, I didn't think they could tackle on the second and third level, and they proved to be correct. They can't tackle on the second and third level. I think the teams know their, their deficiencies, but they definitely know their strengths, right? They know Corey Britty, if he's running and Seth Morgan can just make throws, uh, then they're going to score points. They're not going to stop anybody, but they're going to score some points. And for Chattanooga, the ground game, if you can control the ground game, and get some points on the board, they're going to have a hard time, I think, throwing the football to come back. Let's go top five running back rankings in the Southern Conference. You and me are in agreement that ETSU and Chattanooga have the best backfields in total, including you know all the backs that are there. I think specifically you and me would say Quay Holm, Jacob Sailors, for Chattanooga would be Tyrell Price and Olin Ford. But if we're talking one to five, and we're not including team backfields, just individuals, is Corey Britty. Number one, two, three, where do you put him? Because this is all of a sudden an extremely running back rich conference. He gets a lot of care. So if you look at certain stats, you know, he's not splitting time. You know, even Fred Davis at Mercer splits time, even, and, and we'll get to Furman and, and Mercer in a minute. Um, Devin Abrams finally had a big game, or Devin Wynn, sorry, had a big game. But I think Britty is going to be up there because he doesn't split carries. If they're going to get 200 yards on the ground, he's probably going to have 189 of them. So I think Britty, due to volume, is probably going to be more. If you're looking at, for me, for pure running back purposes, Holmes and Ford, I think, are hands down. And then I think the change of, and then probably win third, Britty four, if you're going that route. Now, some game-changing things. You know, certainly Price can hit big plays. Certainly Jacob Sailors has hit enough big plays. That's a good conversation because the normally you talk about that, you're you're talking about the B-backs or, or something with the Citadel and Wofford, and not, but you're not. You're talking about more traditional style offenses with a spread offense that now can run the football. So um, it's a good question. I think, I think Brady would be up there higher than most for the simple reason he gets more volume. I think quickly off the top of my head, I'd go Holmes, Ford, Britty, Davis. I, I know Wynn's coming off a big week, maybe Wynn. Um, and then in terms of best backfields, we obviously know ETSU and Chattanooga 1 and 2. And if you want to include Tyrell Price and Jacob Sailors in the conversation, they're both certainly top 10. And I think any of those four that we're talking about, ETSU or Chattanooga, could be number one. If they were, as you said, given a complete and total workload like a Brady. In, in fairness, if you featured Sailors and Price, they could easily be one, two, and just replace Holmes <laughs> and Ford. Um, you know, I, I think if you if you took carries out and went that way, yes, yeah, cer- certainly top. Brady's got to be top four in, in any way you look at it. I would, especially this year, the way he's carried the rock. We didn't mention Urban Mulligan, so let's transition to that game. Furman forty-two, Wofford twenty. A game that played out very strangely. Wofford a 10-point lead much of the first half, and I'm sitting in the studio thinking, wow, another game that shows us we truly know nothing about this league despite borderline obsessing about it week after week after week. And then the Paladins wake up and throttle the Terriers. Largest margin of victory in the series for Herman since 2009. Worst FCS loss for Wofford since 2017. Their worst loss under Josh Conklin of 22 points. Furman controlled the game really throughout. 
even when they were behind early. Seven of their ten possessions on the game were seven plays or more, and it is unbelievable to me to see how little Wofford has the ball every week. 74 plays for the Paladins, 44 for Wofford, and the disparity, I believe, against DTSU is relatively similar. And I can't say I understand the usage of the man that I just mentioned before talking about this game, Irvin Mulligan. Only got 10 carries. And one of those was a 72-yard score. Wofford also scored on a 63-yard touchdown from Peyton Derrick to Devin Matthews. And just like against DTSU, they continue to be masters of the big play but cannot sustain drives. 135 yards on those two long touchdowns, just 179. Otherwise, the split was even bigger last week against DTSU. Furman converted 10 of their 13 or 10 of their 15, excuse me, third downs. Wofford still last in the league in third down defense. Jace Wilson starting debut for Furman, 14 to 23, 189, two total touchdowns. But it was about the run game. Devin Wynn over 200 yards and two scores. The offense seemed to kind of find itself in those last, I'd say, what, 35 minutes of the game for Furman. Easy to make a transition in quarterback coming off a of bye week. You get the extra week to prepare. People down in Greenville have told me about Jace Wilson, and I knew he got in some, you know, sort of garbage time there at Mercer. Um, they were high on him and like, hey, he's probably just going to play a few games and go. Well, I think they've scrapped that. Um, you know, unless Furman goes on a losing streak here, I think they've scrapped that, and Wilson's going to be the guy. And it'd be curious to see how things progress and how, honestly, it makes sense. A guy making his first start struggles maybe 20 minutes or so and then figures it out. I mean, you, you know, you, you could see that. But when you hand it off 31 times for 204 yards to a running back, that certainly helps things. And Furman, again, should run the football more. I know they were feeling pretty good about the pass game and Hampson early on and maybe some false insecurity there. But I'm curious to see how Jace Wilson goes because it was a lot of hype. Uh, and I had, again, it's hard following FCS recruiting. Unless you're following that team, it's just hard to get a, a bunch of information because, you know, our major transfer down. You know, so having people get excited about certain things, just like we'll talk about Western. I knew they were excited about Carlos Davis. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Jace Wilson, a lot of pub on him. 14 to 2389 yards, a touchdown, but they're running the ball. They started, you know, really getting big chunk plays on Wofford. It was no sense throwing it. For Wofford, again, Coach Conklin, it's like he wanted to run the ball. I mean, 29 carries, 181 is not bad. They didn't have a lot of offensive plays. They just couldn't get off the field. And you credit Furman. I mean, they fell behind. I think they took the lead right before half or scored to make it a three-point game right before half, and then they took over in the second half. I mean, it was all Furman. Every time I was clicking over during a commercial break from the VMI game, Furman had the football. So it felt that way just clicking over. It certainly played out that way. And I think Wofford, who is not used to not controlling the game and the clock and doing things defensively, and Coach Conklin is going to have to try to turn something around very, very quickly, which I don't see how he's going to do it, but he's going to need to. And it's a trend, right? We haven't seen Wofford be able to get off the field, be able to possess the ball, be able to run enough plays to truly develop themes, consistency, introduce some doubt into opponents' heads, because a lot of what Wofford wants to do, and quite honestly, it's way too many different things, three or four different, I think, concepts of full offenses worked into what they're doing, but a lot of running a triple option, which is now just, of course, one of the elements that they do, 
Uh, but I think what they're probably still known for is that misdirection, the mental game, right? And it gets tougher and tougher as information adds up more and more in your head as a defense throughout the day to discern what is going to come next because you have going into the game a thought of, all right, this is how things are going to go. And Wofford wants to get you out of that mindset, right? Okay, you think this, so we're going to do this. And then if Wofford's able to do that, then the deeper you get into the game, the more you're going to be confused, the more you're going to second-guess yourself, the more mistakes you're going to make. But if you only run 44 plays, and against ETSU it was less, right? It was 45. 45. So right about the same, that's just not enough. You, you can't – if you just say to anybody, hey, one team ran 74 plays, one team ran 44 plays, or 68-45, whatever it was last week, you don't even have to know anything else. Well, I bet the team ran more plays won the game. I mean, it, there are a few instances where, you know, teams, yes, they, they've got just big play capability, and, yes, maybe it's the one time they ran ten less plays and won. Generally speaking, you don't lose a game if you run 30 more plays or 28, 25 more plays than the other team. And when your offense only has 44 plays to try to do something, it's just not going to happen. And, again, Wofford can't get off the 10 of 15 on third down for Furman converting, 1 of 1 on fourth down. So 11 of 16 on third and fourth down. You just can't win ball games that way. And I think as much as I'm shocked Wofford isn't running the ball, that's another team like the Citadel that had some pro guys, especially on that defensive line that kind of controlled things that they just don't have. And I know they've had injuries. And, and in fairness to Wofford, they have had a ton of injuries on both offense and defensive line. And I think at the FCS level, it's not like there's tremendous depth there. So it can't be understated what they're missing, but they don't do anything to help themselves. You know, you can try to shorten a game by running the ball more, by trying to do whatever. I just – I don't know what – again, watch the game. I don't, I don't know who Wofford is. I don't know their identity. I, you know, Wofford was, you know, where I said – Chattanooga kind of was what I thought they were. VMI was what I thought they were. Wofford was what I thought they were. Now, Furman throws a monkey wrench because Chase Wilson, I was not expecting to start and play. I, I thought maybe we'd get some more time. Him starting, playing, them handing the ball off more. Now, Furman's a little more intriguing. Let's see how they build off that. I certainly, Coach Hendricks comes from that Air Force background, so they're always going to have some triple option stuff, but they're going to do it different ways. They're going to run the ball different ways, and they're going to want to throw the ball. That's sort of how Air Force is sort of uh, differentiated themselves from Army-Navy. And Coach Hendricks, you know, that's sort of when they were winning, you know, in the 90s and when he was a player in the 80s, that's how they were winning games, you know, a little bit balanced with some three-back-looking things. Now, they don't do as much true three-back stuff, but they will have a couple running backs, shotgun. It'll be a little, you know, confusing what they're going to do. And if Wilson can, you know, Managed a couple of games till he really gets comfortable. But 14 to tw- in his first start, 14 to 23, 189 yards and a score. Six carries, 26 yards and a score. I think you'll take that for a kid's fir- a true freshman's first game, right? I mean, I think you'll take that. We'll see how he progresses over the next few weeks. But I think Coach um, George Corral's offense coordinator will probably put him in some good spots. Mercer 34, Western 24. We thought this was going to be a tight game, and we get some form of retribution after Western disappointed on the road against Chattanooga the week before. 
because we thought that one was going to be close too, and they lost by 28. It was actually 24-24 with 10 minutes left, and the thoughts began to creep into my head that maybe we had overreacted to Mercer because you and me are both in on them, have been for pretty much the entire year. But they beat Point University, Furman, who we really knew nothing about before this week, and a Sanford team that can score but can't win. Were the Bears actually a product of their schedule? And maybe we still don't know because Western Carolina is still winless after this week. And you can kind of see just how many things run through my head on these games when they're happening in real time. It's really a mind-bending conference. But Mercer ends up finding a way. School record 51-yard field goal for Devin Fulser to put the Bears up 27-24. Then Carlos Davis, who started instead of Rogan Wells, throws an interception in the Catamount's own territory, returned down to the one-yard line one play later. Fred Davis extended to a two-possession lead for Mercer, and that was it. Davis, not great in place of Wells. 18-32, 222. A touchdown, but two interceptions, including that crucial one late on. Western, a minus seven in the turnover margin, is worst in the league. Davis, another big day for Mercer on the ground, 128 and two scores. And once again, Fred Payton, unspectacular at quarterback for the Bears, but gets the win. Mercer, the only other league undefeated in the SoCon outside of ETSU. So this weekend, in totality, I think you look at the games we said, you know, we kind of favor Furman a bit on the road against Wofford, now that it ended up being more skewed. Said Mercer was... Probably going to struggle with Western Carolina, as many teams may, especially in Cullowee this year, and it ended up being, you know, tight as a game as you could have, you know, for the majority of it, um, especially late on there when, you know, 10 minutes left, 24-24, and then obviously a couple things go Mercer's way. And uh, ETSU, I think we both, not only because it's an ETSU podcast, but just looking unbiasedly, thought that ETSU would be able to win relatively uh, handily against the Citadel, uh, and then BMI Chattanooga, that lived up to the billing as the game of the week. That was certainly the game of the week. That that lived up to a, a situation where VMI wanted to prove 2019 beating Chattanooga wasn't a fluke. Chattanooga wanted to put a stranglehold on the matchup with ETSU. I know there were plenty of people, probably on ETSU's, too many people on ETSU's side, not players and coaches and us, that are pointing to, well, next week's the de facto championship game. And you know, trying to pump the brakes, like, yeah, you got to win that, and Chattanooga's got to do that. Well, I know because f- several people that used to work at ETSU worked down at Chattanooga, and I know several people in media down in Chattanooga, and they had pretty much written off the win against VMI, and the game of century for the SOCON was going to be next week, and it didn't happen. But it was the game of the week, I think. Western was exactly what they're going to be, a thorn in people's sides that are going to give you a scare. And if you make some, you know, you get to the fourth quarter, you make a mis- if you make a mistake, then, yes, Western can beat you. Mercer got to the fourth quarter, and Western made the mistakes, and Mercer was able to hang on. I still think Western's going to be a tough out. I think they're going to compete. I think they're going to have a couple of tough road games coming up at Citadel and Wofford. And they're going to get a chance at home to give Furman and ETSU fits. And if Furman and ETSU are sort of rolling at that part, and they go in there kind of ho-humming it, it's always been tough to win in Cullowee, and they always give you a better game up in Cullowee. And I think you got to be careful of that. And for Wofford, Josh Conklin loses at home to Western Carolina. Does he even get to the post-game press conference? I mean, they're already cl- – they were clamoring before the ETSU game. They were really clamoring after the ETSU game. After you lose to Furman when the worst possible score, there are some real grumblings and problems. And Josh Conklin, I would say if he's a smart man, I think he is, 
I think he will have the resume out for the defense coordinator and try to beat everyone to the punch because it's not going to end well if he loses to Western Carolina at home in two weeks. Will that be my bold prediction? Probably. Oh, Probably. boy. I'm going to make a bold prediction. I, I may make a bold prediction too far out. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll hold off on this. Speaking of bold predictions, we'll do the recap a little later. But first, Simon Harris, Mike Gallagher, talking ETSU women's basketball for this time out. San Jose on the Bucket Air Sports Network. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community, providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead investing in our community today and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power here for you. Basketball season when you get to October, and really it's basketball season all year round here in Johnson City. ETSU fans get enough. The region cannot get enough, whether it's ETSU men's basketball, women's basketball. Teams win. This region likes a winner. The man that plans on getting ETSU basketball back to their winning ways on the women's side is Simon Harris. Visited with him, gosh, maybe six months ago, Coach? Yeah, like about six seven months. now, yeah. Uh, that's Crazy. a long time. Yeah, you've been here. <laughs> For what feels like just the blink of an eye, but I'm yeah. imagining from your perspective, it actually feels like maybe the craziest six months of your life. So let me go through <laughs> it here if I can. I believe your first head coaching job, mm-hmm. then you relocate here, obviously, mm-hmm. buy a house, mm-hmm. and then congratulations to you, you are engaged as well. That was all the <laughs> six-month period. Yes, it was. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, couldn't be happier about all of that. Um, then. You know, working towards that, it's been a lifelong dream of mine, so it's been awesome to be able to do that here in this region. Is this the craziest six months of your life? And if there is another six-month period that even comes close, please, I would love to hear it and see if I can hold a candle to what has gone on. Yeah, um, kind of, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, there was there was a period of time where school ended, went overseas, and that was wild, and then came back, and that was pretty crazy, and tried to figure out what to do and ended up having an opportunity with the Dallas Cowboys and that was pretty wild and that was all in pretty much a six month span but I'd say this is by far the the craziest and most whirlwind it's been but it's, it's been beautiful being able to prepare for it and now being in settling in my staff's done a great job of helping with that process and you know the, the athletic community here especially our administration you know president on down to Scott it's just it's been great so I, I can't say crazy it's been welcomed but it's it's been a little wild. You mentioned your staff. Let's talk about them a little bit because it seems to me that you've hired some fantastic people. I've met everyone except, I believe, Joe, assistant coach Joe Silvestri. He obviously has a family, so he's busy there. When I've been over there, he's you know in the midst of coaching, so we just haven't had the chance. I'm covering four different programs during the fall, and obviously, you know, once winter comes around, we'll really be able to dive in and, and get acquainted. But everybody else I've met has been just fantastic, and. I'm not sure what word you want to use, but being the boss, guide, mentor, whatever you prefer, how has it been managing roles, uh, figuring out what people are going to do, um, and I guess when it has been necessary, if it has been necessary, being that boss-type person, knowing that you're the head coach 
and exerting that authority if you've needed to, but really just managing personalities, roles, and building your first staff as head coach. It's been interesting. I mean, it's, again, I've been wanting to prepare for this for a long time. So coming into it, and I've been very fortunate to be around a lot of good head coaches and different mentors throughout the profession and also different businesses, is it, it was kind of easy for me because in the hiring process, I hired two of my really good friends. You know, a lot of people say not to do so. Uh, if I'm going in my chosen profession with the first opportunity to have this chance to run a program, I want to go in there with people who completely understand who I am as a person first and what I want. So um, coming in, had the responsibilities basically laid out, especially after establishing relationships with everybody else. And they kind of, they're all very self-driven humans, which is great. So kind of what the tasks are given to them, delegated to, if you will, they take their responsibilities and really run with it. And that's kind of another thing of why. The whirlwind's been much calmer now because we're into it and everybody's very comfortable with the roles that they have. How did you figure out those roles? When you were building your staff, did you intentionally go and find people you thought would be good at exactly the different skill mm-hmm. sets that you were looking to fill? Or once you assembled the staff, did you, did you then look and say, okay, well, I know this person's great at this. I know this yeah. person's great at this and this person can do this. I know I can do this. And just kind of fill in the holes. Yeah, I, I kind of had an outline of what I wanted to accomplish and how I wanted to do things. And in doing so, just having genuine relationships with two of them and then building relationships with everybody else could kind of see, and I genuinely asked what they didn't want to do and what they would be interested in doing. I'm never going to put somebody in a position to, you know, have a task to achieve that they don't have their heart in. I just feel it's unfair to them and unfair to our program. So I had an idea of what each person could do, just having those relationships and building those relationships. And it's been awesome to see them kind of flourish within those. So you're about two weeks in as we talk on this Monday to practice. What are the two things that instantly come to mind about your first two weeks of, and again, we kind of have to use the quotes practice, right? Yeah. Because this is the official <laughs> practice. You've been practicing with these kids for a number of months now. No doubt, but no when you think about these first two weeks as things ramp up towards the season, because yeah. really it's more symbolic in that way now, the two things that come to mind right off the top. I mean, shoot, like you said, it's Monday, and waking up this morning after having yesterday off, a big thing for me was the buy-in that they have. It's really awesome to be able to wake up on a Monday morning and know the plan that you set forth is going to be executed as hard as they possibly can do it. And that's kind of what we talk about in the program. You kind of see, we talk about the expectation, and there's when people uphold that. And another major thing I think that I'm finding is that these kids really want to win. So it's a everything we can possibly do together to build towards getting our environment to a winning championship mindset has been adhered to and then executed. So hopefully we continue to do that. We'll, we'll take our lumps here and there. You know, it's we're growing. We have a lot of younger players and a lot of things to learn together. But I, I think the beauty of that in, in those two scenarios is that the willingness for us to get better, to get together and collectively. Eight freshmen and even more newcomers, and certainly as the year goes along, we'll talk a lot about that. But uh, <laughs> that first part of what we just discussed is what I like to call the softball portion of the interview. I'm going to hit you with the high heat now. I love so it. So let's I love jump it. into it, and you just give me true or false, and then some reasoning, of course, if you're at liberty to say. Yeah. I know there's some things you don't want to reveal just yet. For sure. So I'll plead the fifth if necessary. <laughs> let's get into it. So the team is ahead of where you thought they would be at this point in camp, true or false? Almost definitely, because it's, again, what we just referenced, the buy-in that we've had, the, the way they've gone about the preparation and attacking what we're trying to do has really set us on a good path to be more advanced than you would think where you are at the beginning of the season, and especially it all being new for literally everybody within the program. Carly Hooks was ETSU's leading scorer last year. Mm-hmm. She will be the leading scorer again this year for the Bucks. true or false? 
strong possibility if she continues to prepare the way she's doing. I, I love her mentality towards things. Our relationship has grown immensely, and there's a complete trust between the both of us. And everything that she knows we discuss is to put her in a position to be successful. If she continues to do that, she could absolutely be. My guess is when you're saying strong possibility – the positive to take out of that is it's not anything where Carly is not capable, but you might have some others yeah. that could fill that role. For sure, for sure. It's a lot of people are gaining confidence with the, what they're doing, and that's allowing us to you know feel a little bit better about where we are. And it goes into the advancement that we just talked about, and there's a lot of people stepping up in that way where they realize we're all trying to do this together, and you have the opportunity to do so as long as you don't disrespect it. And so it, she could, and there's a few other people who I, I feel could also take that mantle as well. Courtney Moore has the highest ceiling of returning players. Uh, yeah, I don't think uh, Courtney and I'd say Jakai as well. I, I don't think they realize how good they are, and it's really cool to be able to again within the relationship process, seeing that they're starting to realize the capabilities that they have, and they're nowhere near their ceiling. So, uh, Courtney absolutely can, and I think you know really anybody in that class really can as well. Jameer Houston or Jayla Roberts will be the top newcomer in the league this year, not just on your team, yeah. but in the league. I think they both have an opportunity to be co, if you will. I, I really like the way they've prepared. I like their leadership. I like what they've done and correlating what they did at other places that they may not have liked to bring it in here to allow our environment to thrive. And what I mean, like their preparation process, different things that went on maybe in the collective locker rooms. Uh, and they come in here and set that leadership tone as to they want to win. They're here for a reason. And they were two of our four who first had that vision of where we're really trying to go with this expectation to hang banners in Brooks Hall. So it's it's been awesome. I hope hopefully they are called. I think I may have taken it too easy on you. I said high heat. I'm not sure that was high enough or hot enough. But it is the first interview of the preseason, so we will go easy on you just a bit, Coach, because we have plenty of these to do. And we will – fold back more layers of the roster and talk about players more in depth individually as we go on. But I think that even these little grains of knowledge and opinion and perspective that you're providing on the returning players, also some of the new players, you mentioned Jayla Roberts and Jameer Houston, but also those returners, Courtney Moore, Harley Hooks, Ja'Kai Davis, many on both sides that we didn't mention. Your perspective is going to be different than the last coaching staff, more than likely. Those players that you're inheriting are not ones that you recruited, and so how do they fit? And then the new players, you know, who's coming along quickest and such. So thanks for handling those mildly hot and about neck-high questions. We'll get more of those as we go along towards the opener. And speaking of the opener, it's less than a month away. Cleveland State on the road November 9th, and exactly one month from today, then you have your second game of the year, Bowling Green. This may be the most important month of your coaching life at this point. You've got a chance to lead a program that you're trying to turn around your first head coaching job and trying to define roles and make everything mesh in time. If you're to put a successful product, whether that's a winning product or not on day one on the court, but a product that you are proud of, that the players can be proud of, that the fans can be proud of, if that's to come forth on night one, what needs to happen over this next month? What will you be focusing on? Yeah, I think the major thing is just putting these young people in different situations. It's all been a free flow of everybody doing every role kind of through the course of our offense. They all have an understanding of where to be, timing, what you're thinking. And you may not necessarily be there through the course of that while we're going through it when you have your positions. But I think one thing is they're finding their confidence within everything, which then in turn I feel will define their roles, but will define it with them. But then we can see kind of when we're under duress when we hit that first speed bump as to who can really step up, 
who sticks and adheres to their training instead of resorting back to what feels comfortable. And then we'll be able to build our lineups and who's going to be able to handle different situations offensively, defensively, and kind of flow from there. Okay, one more high-heat question. Oh, yeah. Into my mind. So I believe the Bucks averaged 58 points per game yes. last year. ETSU will average 70 or more points per game this year. Lord willing, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, we are more than capable of doing so, which is – uh, you, you know, I don't think every coach in the country can say that at this point. So if we continue to build the way we are, I, I think that is a very obtainable number, and that's actually a figure we talk about. So that's kind of what I figure because you're looking at obviously increasing pace. And yeah. I think when people hear that, they instantly think, okay, well, it's going to be constantly up and down the floor, nonstop, 40 minutes. And maybe that is what you end up doing. But I think it's hard when you're coming from you know slower pace, maybe mm-hmm. struggle on offense, mm-hmm. to – make that big transition and leap into a faster pace to know what exactly is attainable that Absolutely. first year and what exactly you want that pace to be and what the goals are. So that's where that one comes from. 70 seems like a lofty number, but with the players you have in, yeah. the players you have back, and the pace you want to be able to run, you're thinking that this is an attainable number, at least right now as you're yeah. sorting through things in the preseason. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's very attainable because, it's again, the workload is what the workload is, and they're all kind of stepping up to that. And our mindset is getting the best shot as fast as possible through the course of our offense, and they all have the freedom to do so until they don't, if you will. Um, So as long as we take good ones and we're pushing the pace, and again, like you said, pace isn't necessarily as fast as we're going into it. It's just the confidence at which we can operate at. Mm. So we are going to try to operate as fast as we can in order to put the defense under duress and then be able to put the ball in the basket and then on the defensive end get up, intensify, so we gain more possession, so we have more shots than the other team. Coach, appreciate you. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for everything you do for us, brother. It's good to see you. Hopefully we'll have you back on before the season starts, but we'll let Coach Harris get back to practice, and we will move on to our Bowl Predictions recap on the side of this break on the Buccaneers Sports Network. Absolutely. And they never heard from him again. (gasps) Now that's scary, but listen to this one. It was a dark and dreary night. The man pulled into the convenience store parking lot. The lights flickered as he crept toward the counter and saw the new Halloween jumbo box, but he left without buying one, missing his chance at (gasps) $75,000. That's terrifying. I know, right? Scare up some fun this season with a new Halloween jumbo box, only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Shohei Otani has taken MLB by storm this season. He's the first player in MLB history to be selected to the All-Star Game as both a pitcher and a position player. The Brooklyn Nets are whole. They are done. If they were committed, if they put in that work, you'd be in the Eastern Conference right now. The Brooklyn Nets are whole watching the playoffs with the rest of us. JaVale McGee has been added to the Team USA roster. Yes, I'll say that again. JaVale McGee. Damari Monsanto announced he would not be returning to the Buccaneers. A 6'6", 225-pound, three-star shooting guard was this year's Southern Conference Freshman of the Year. But Jay is my teammate. He stepped up with the 17 green to our left, the 18th tee, 45 yards away. Jay proceeds to hit from the 18th tee to the 17th green and into the 17th bucket.
Cowboy up and go play ball.